And I, I was just wondering, would you like to take questions straight after, or would you want to do it uh, after three presentations? And it might be a bit dull to have three presentations. It's high up to you. Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay, thanks very much. Um, so, thanks for inviting us again, everyone. It's been a great trip. Um, I'm going to talk about experiments in public confidence and peace, which as has just been uh, explained. Um, this is actually a very shortened version of the paper I circulated, because having written that paper, I realised it would be impossible to present all the findings from that in 20 minutes. So this is going to just touch on some aspects from that paper, and if, if you're interested in, in this stuff, do have a look at the paper, because there's a, quite a lot more in there than I'm going to have time to talk about in the next 20 minutes. Um, in the time that I have got, I want to do these things, really, these four things. First, give two bits of background, kind of contextualise this research um, in, in, in its wider setting, at least within British Anglo-American, Anglo-centric criminology, and I think more widely as well. Um, talk a bit about public confidence and police legitimacy, just define some terms, just say, just define the things I'm talking about and why they're important and why they're interesting. And particularly, I'm going to introduce the procedural justice model um, and think through the implications for that in the research that I'm presenting. Um, and then I'm going to look at the causes of trust and legitimacy, because this is where the experimental aspect of this comes in. And that's results from two UK experiments there. I'm actually only going to talk about one. It's the first one that's covered in the paper, if you've had a chance to look at that. Um, and I'll finish with some questions. So this research and, and the wider body of research that this, 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 this particular presentation addresses um, is actually interesting in the context of this, con this conference, this seminar, um, because it's mainly about what happens when procedural justice goes right, or when justice goes right, or at least what happens, what the police and other justice actors can do to make things right. Um, and actually, it's also an example of when experiments, when social research goes wrong. <coughs> Um, and I'll, hopefully by the end of the presentation you'll see why they went wrong. Um, the first bit of background is this. The context of this research and the context of the wider body of research, which this is a one, one small part, is really, in, in the broader sense, democratic policing. And this provides both a, a normative framework. This is the kind of policing that we kind of want, in some sense. So you could draw on any number of authors to give you an idea about what democratic policing might look like. Respect for citizens' rights, procedural fairness, I'm going to talk about that in some depth. Minimum use of force, accountability, responsibility, citizen participation, etc., etc. This is both the kind of policing that we want, I think everyone wants this, this is also, I suspect, um, the kind of policing that research I'm talking about presupposes. So we've got the police in the United Kingdom are very far from being perfect, but they do at least tick some of these boxes. And it may be that the things I'm going to be talking about for this presentation only really make sense when the police service you've got at least ticks some of these boxes to some extent. And I'll just leave that hanging. That might be something we want to talk about um, towards the end. The second bit of background is this, and this is where we're getting into the idea of what can the criminal justice system do to get things right. So one of the key issues in criminology, and we haven't touched too much on it here, actually, in the last couple of days, um, but one of the key issues in criminology is why do people break the law? So what are the factors that determine people's decisions to break the law? That's the question we usually ask. The question in, the, in my, my, myself and my colleagues, and none of this is my own work, I have to say just my own work, this is all very much part of a collaborative um, project. Myself and my colleagues would like to look at this question from a different angle. So we want to say, why do people obey the law? Why do people make a sense of positive choice to follow rules and regulations and the law itself? And of course there are lots of reasons why people might obey the law. Fear of punishment. That's the most obvious one. Social motivation. It's about saying I feel guilty to other people if they break the law. Most people obey most laws most of the time, certainly in the context in which I tend to work, because they think it's wrong to engage in the behaviours that are prohibited in law. But what we're really interested in, of course, both in this area of research and, and I think 
in, 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 the, in, the, in the seminar in the last couple of days, is what can justice institutions do to affect law-related behaviour? And in, in particular, what can justice institutions do to promote law-abidingness, so to not stop people breaking the law, but to encourage people to obey the law? So just reframing the question, in a sense. The biggest piece of body of work we have around this issue at the moment is based um, on the thing called procedural justice theory, or the procedural justice model. It's got a number of names. And this is a model developed by a social psychologist called Tom Tyler in the United States, um, starting from the 1980s and going right up to the present day. Um, and what the procedural justice theory, or the procedural justice model is, is really a, a theory or a way of understanding social behaviour in group settings. So all this model is based on the idea that human beings are always acting in group settings. They're very often, however, acting in group settings where there are unequal power balances within that group setting, within that context. So it's obviously particularly relevant in the context of criminal justice because individuals engaging or acting or, or, or talking to or whatever they're doing with criminal justice actors are doing, across, doing so across quite a steep power imbalance. The police officer or the judge or whoever it is has a lot of power over the individual citizen in almost every case. And what the procedural justice model um, does is provide a way of understanding what types of activity police officers, for example, and I'm going to limit today's conversation to police officers, it could apply to any other criminal justice actor as well, provides a way of understanding what types of police behaviour might promote or inhibit compliance and cooperation. So what might encourage people to obey the law rather than prevent people from breaking the law? And procedural justice model, I think, like all good ideas, it's got at its heart a really simple, basic observation. And that's in the context, of the, such as the ones I've been talking about, where you have unequal power relations in group settings. What people value in their interactions with power holders in those settings is just and decent treatment, transparent, fair decision-making, a sense of respect, a sense of equality within that relationship, at least within that moment. When people feel treated in this way by justice actors, by police officers, and this promotes a sense of exactly justice, that this person with whom I'm interacting is acting in a fair way. It promotes a sense of just in this actor and the institutional organisation they represent. Just procedural justice, trust in turn, enhanced legitimacy. Enhanced legitimacy leads to decision acceptance, cooperation and compliance with the law. So this is the core claim of the procedural justice model. Its second core claim, running alongside this, is these processes are more important than instrumental concerns. So when people are thinking about the legitimacy of the police, they're thinking much more about the procedural fairness of the police, whether they trust the police in this sense, than they are about whether the police are effective in dealing with crime, in, in combating, in, in catching offenders, in prosecuting offenders, etc., etc. It's not to say they don't care about those things, because they do, they just care more about the fairness of interactions they have with officers or interactions they imagine they might have with officers in the future. Why does procedural justice work? Why does it have this effect? Well, I think... Remember, it's all based in group settings. What procedural fairness does is when you're interacting with a police officer, that police officer represents to you an important social group. You might characterise it as the nation state, and obviously there's a lot of material in the sociology of police which says that's exactly what the police represent to most people. When that officer treats you with fairness, with dignity and respect, you feel included, you feel you belong, you feel you have status within the group the police officer represents. When you feel unfairly treated, you feel excluded, you feel pushed out, you feel denigrated. Um, and... When you feel included in the group, you're motivated to legitimise its authorities, you're motivated to follow its rules. When you feel excluded from a group, when you feel pushed out, you're not motivated to legitimise its authorities, you're not motivated to abide by, by its rules. Basically, if a group is excluding you, why should you bother going along with what the rules that govern the behaviour of that group? 
Um, I think there's an important other aspect of procedural justice, or another component, or another uh, a part of its effects, lies in the idea that police should be exemplars of good conduct. So when a police officer acts in a way that you think they should act back, in other words, treating you with dignity and respect or treating other people around you with dignity and respect, you think, well, he's fulfilling his side of the bargain, or she, I should feel, fulfill my side of the bargain. When a police officer doesn't act in those ways, you're going to start thinking, well, they're not doing the right thing, why should I bother doing the right thing? So I think procedural justice has an effective component and it has an evaluative component. And both these things feed into the legitimacy judgments that people make, feed into cooperation, compliance and so on. And if this model is right, of course, cooperation and compliance with the law can be secured, most importantly, by justice agents, by police officers, not by demonstrating instrumental effectiveness, although to reiterate, that is important, but primarily by treating people with dignity, with respect, with fairness, by making them feel included, making them feel they belong in the group the police represent. Um, talked a lot about legitimacy. Just, just a brief word about what I mean by legitimacy in, in this context is quite important when, we, when we're in a legal context. Um, I'm dealing with an empirical notion of legitimacy here. So I'm not thinking about things that actually make the police legitimate in some objective sense. I'm talking about the way that people react to social institutions and the extent to which they legitimise those social institutions based um, or, or not based on their own opinions, experiences, orientations and so forth. If you see legitimacy in these terms, you can define it in a number of ways. You can say it's property, or an authority, or an institution that leads people to feel this is entitled to be deferred to and obeyed. That's obviously important in the criminal justice context. So in other words, the argument here would be when someone grants the police legitimacy, they feel they have a duty to abide by the instructions of police officers. If they don't grant the police legitimacy, they don't feel any such sense of duty. And when they're at such a sense of duty is absent, the police have to rely on force to get what they want out of people. You could go slightly more expansive. You could say legitimacy is a right to enforce commands which cannot be countermanded and to have a monopoly of such legitimate enforcement. So here we're going back to Weber and the idea that the police are the, the monopolists of legitimate force within society. Um, we, in this work, tend to use a slightly, and even more, if you like, expansive notion of legitimacy. is based on a work of a political scientist called David Beetham. Um, he's got, the, to my mind, still the best definition or best understanding of legitimacy or, or the way we're thinking about legitimacy in this context. And he thinks legitimacy is always granted on the basis of common shared values. So it's actually a quietly radical idea when you think about it. This means that the legitimacy of important state institutions such as the police is always, in a sense, up for grabs. It's always in a state of change, a state of flux. They have more or less in different contexts. People make judgments about the police that cause them to delegitimize the police based on their own experiences. The legitimacy of the police is not a given. It's always in flux. Um, and he goes a bit beyond that. His three dimensions must be fulfilled for a power to be considered legitimate, conformity to a set of rules, the justifiability of these rules in terms of shared beliefs, and the expressed consent of those governed or rather affected by the power. So it's about conforming to the rules that govern the behaviour of the institution. It's about a judgment of whether those are the right rules. And it's about the expressed consent of the people. So it's not enough for people to believe that the police are legitimate, for the police to be legitimate. They have to act on those beliefs. They have to express their legitimating uh, ideas, as it were. Um, so this would be one way of kind of conceptualising some of what I've just said. So on the left hand, I probably can't see most of this, on the left hand side we've got factors that feed into trust in the police. So I've spent a lot of time talking about personal contact and imagined personal contact, experiences of policing, so personal contact with officers, vicarious contacts, so kind of uh, conversations, ideas or stories about the police that circulate in social groups. You could put the media in there, you could put the have for people's cultural repertoire, they just brew the imaginings they bring to the police. You could have, of course, experiences of crime, victimization, antisocial behaviour, 
could have social psychological factors, authoritarianism, some people are just motivated to grant legitimacy to authority figures, they just like it in some sense, system justification, power distances, etc. This is basically just bringing home the idea that there are lots of factors going on behind driving trust in police, driving legitimacy that flows from that trust. I'm going to, I'm going to, that's what I'm claiming happens. Um, I'm going to concentrate today on just one very specific aspect of this wider model, which is personal contact between individuals and police officers. And look, the, look to the extent to which we can say that personal contact in some sense causes trust and in some sense causes legitimacy. It's a causal link with these ideas and motivations that people might have. Um, as I've kind of intimated at the beginning, procedural justice theory has primarily been developed in Anglophone contexts. Um, the US, UK, Australia, etc. It's finding increasing purchase in, in the overdeveloped world, if you want to use that phrase. Um, it's much less clear whether it works in non-anglophone contexts or in the global south. I'm going to leave that question hanging. We can return to that at the end. Um, the question I do want to address um, is that most evidence on these issues, basically almost everything I've said so far, um, the evidence for that primarily comes from cross-sectional sample surveys, opinion poll research, basically. Um, which is my way of saying that the evidence we have for the kind of relationships I've been talking about are good, is good, but it's not that good because it's only based on, the, only based on these cross-sectional sample surveys. I mean, that's a slight caricature. The research is slightly more um, rich than that, but, but, but you take the point. Um, what I want to talk, talk about today is field experiments or the conduct of a field experiment um, that allows us to test whether the experience of procedural fairness at the hands of police officers really does cause, really is causally linked to people's trust judgments and their legitimacy judgments, and then we would think on to cooperation and compliance, etc., etc. Um, because cross-sectional data, survey data, um, can uncover association but can't uncover causation. And I don't think I need to labour that point. Experiments of the type that I'm going to be talking about now do allow assignment of causal effects. Um, and I won't go too much into the kind of conceptualising experiments, I think it's fairly obvious what they are, but um, one way of thinking about what an experiment is in this context is, is, is to look at the work of Shadi Shetel. They say all, all experiments, or all, all social experiments, all experiments actually in general, have four elements that they share in common. They have variation in treatment, i.e. you do something to one person or one group of people, or whether, whoever the experimental subjects are, and you don't do it to another person or another group of people. They have post-treatment measures of outcomes, you measure stuff, in the experiment, you have at least one unit in which the observation is made, i.e. you're observing, in our case, people. Um, and you have a mechanism for inferring what the outcome would have been had, you, had it not been for the treatment, which is just a fancy way of saying you have a treatment group, you have an experimental group, they get the thing that you think has the causal effect on the outcomes you're interested in, um, and you have a control group who don't get that thing. And you're comparing between the two, and that comparison between the two allows you to assign the causal effect. Um, some would insist that true experiments require randomization of the treatment. Um, actually, the experiment I'm going to explain to you now does have randomization of the treatment. Not all experiments do need randomization, actually. And the second experiment that's in the paper that is a non-randomized experiment, what's known as a quasi-experiment. That's just an aside. So, trying to claim, I think, that contact, personal contact with police officers is probably one of the strongest influences on people's trust judgments on the legitimacy that they grant to the police. Um, the best evidence we have for a causal association here so far comes from something called the Queensland Community Engagement Choir, or QSET. Um, this does provide experimental evidence that the quality of interaction between police officers and individuals has a causal or direct effect on perceptions of police fairness, satisfaction with encounters, 
trusted police legitimacy. What they did in QSET, which was conducted in uh, Queensland, as the name would suggest, in Australia in 2010, I think, um, they took road, random roadside breath tests, of which they do a huge amount in Australia, millions of these things each year. Um, the baseline encounter in these road tests between an officer and a citizen is very, very quick. Basically, they just pull the car in, they march up to the window, they say, blow in this, you're negative, off you go. The encounters last less than 30 seconds on that basis. For the QSET trial, all they did is they took some of the core principles of procedural justice, dignity, respect, um, clear communication, transparency, etc., etc. They operationalised those into a checklist that the officers had to deliver in this encounter, increased the encounter length to 90 seconds, and as a result, the people who received that treatment, received that intervention, in, in, intervention had higher levels of trust in police fairness, higher levels of satisfaction with the encounter, and they granted the police more legitimacy on that basis. The experiment I want to talk about was designed as exactly as a replication of this. So one of the key strengths, I think, of the experimental method is you can replicate it across different contexts. And actually, it's in the process of replication that you really be able to get firmly towards the cause and effects that you're interested in. And this was conducted in Scotland um, in the Christmas, uh, uh, Christmas just passed. Um, and we tried to do it, myself and my colleague Sarah McQueen um, from the University of Edinburgh, we tried to do it in as close a way or a way that matched what they'd done in Australia as closely as possible. Um, so this was doing the fe National Festive Road Safety Campaign. The name does what it says on the tin. Really, it's all around drink driving safety over the, over the Christmas period um, to try and encourage drivers to not drink, drive safely, etc., etc. They don't do random stops. Um, they claim. I think they probably do do random stops in, in effect. Um, but the, the, so it's a slightly different context. Drivers are stopped by the police with the aim of preventing drink driving and, and primarily, actually, improving vehicle and driver safety. So they'll pull someone over if they've got a broken tail light. Um, they may or may not give them a ticket for the bro a broken tail light. They'll have a chat with them. They'll say, you need to get your broken tail light fixed. If they think there's a good reason, they'll give them a breath test. You get the idea. And it's kind of, it's kind of an instrumental intervention to strike fear into drivers, but it's also a, kind of a, a process-based intervention to try and develop links between the police and community, try to demonstrate to the community that the police care about their safety and the safety of other people on the roads, etc. There's around 20,000 stops in Scotland um, over the, 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 this period, um, and we, did a, we utilised a matched pairs pre-post design. So basically, road traffic policing in Scotland is, is, is organised into units. There are 20 of these units. We group them into pairs based on the similarity. So, for example, Glasgow and Edinburgh were paired because they're the two largest cities. They're similar. All the other areas were paired on the basis of similarity. So we had ten pairs. We then literally flipped a coin to decide which one of the pair got the intervention, which one of the, the pair didn't. Then we had a pre-survey. So all the officers who made stops in the pre-survey period handed out a questionnaire to people. We then had a changeover period where we provided them some briefing period materials. Then the post-period... They did exactly the same. They implemented the intervention in the test areas and they handed out a questionnaire. So we had pre and post measures of opinions. We had the intervention in the, te in the test areas and we had the control areas. And again, comparison of what changes between uh, pre and post in test and control areas will give us an idea of whether the intervention we designed really did increase trust and legitimacy. Um, we suffered, we, we experienced some difficulty in the design of this. Um, business as usual in Scotland was, dif was different to business as usual in Australia. Remember, in Australia, the encounters were very short. 
30 seconds. In, Aus- in Scotland, they were much longer, much more discursive. The officer, and basically, the officers were already implementing a lot of procedural justice in the encounters they were, they were, they were um, doing, as it were. They were good at explaining to people why they'd been stopped. They were good at managing those encounters in a way that demonstrated respect and dignity. So we had a problem here of implementing an intervention that was significantly different to business as usual. But we tried. So what we did is, again, designed a checklist which had a number of key elements the officers were asked to try and get across in the process of every encounter. We said, please do all of these things. At the moment, you're probably doing some of them. Can you do all of them at the moment? And we also included a leaflet that tried to explain to people um, why this festive campaign was running, what the police were going to get out of it, what the public should get out of it in terms of increased road safety, etc., etc. And the key messages were around respect, Quality, trustworthy motives. I explained why people, why they've been stopped. Dignity, neutrality, all the core aspects of procedural justice theory. And that's just a picture of you. I'm sure you can't see that. That's just a picture of the leaflet that we designed with Police Scotland to hand out. So everyone in the test group got one of these leaflets. leaflets. Everyone in the control group did not. Um, four basic hypotheses we wanted to test. We wanted to see whether the intervention this procedural justice intervention that we tried to design, um, increased perceptions of procedural justice doing the stop itself, whether they increased satisfaction with the stop, were you satisfied with the way the officer treated you on this occasion, whether it increased trust and confidence in the police, and whether it increased police legitimacy, so four hypotheses. Um, just a quick slide on the kind of beauty of randomization. This is the vaguely evangelical bit of this. I'm not, particular, I'm not particularly evangelical about experiments. I think in some respects they're deeply problematic, but they are very useful if you're into social research. So we got a very low response rate on this postal survey, as you usually get with postal surveys. So we got less than 8% of the surveys back. We're still a sample size of about 800 or something, which is plenty. Um, but because of the randomization, that doesn't matter. Because the treatment was randomised on the flip of the coin, the actual response rate is immaterial, in a sense. It's a non-representative sample. We can't claim that this sample is even representative of the people who are out on Scotland's roads over this period. That's not the point. It doesn't have to be a a representative sample, again, because of the randomisation process. This is, this is why one of the reasons why experiments are good, as well as being able to assign causal effects. But what we found is overall, across treatment and control groups, driver perception of the police encounter was very, very positive. So this basically confirmed what we thought originally. Police in Scotland were already very good at doing this. So this meant, for one thing, and this is what we kind of suspected right from the beginning, our intervention was rather weak, because it wasn't very different from what they were doing at the moment, compared to in contrast with Australia, where the intervention was strong. It was quite different to what they were doing originally. But what we found was perceptions of procedural justice increased in the control group that didn't get the intervention, and they fell in the experimental group, which did get the intervention. So it's not that we didn't have any effect at all, we made things worse by the intervention. This is where it's talking about research going wrong. Um, No effect on trust. Satisfaction with the encounter, did you like the way the police officer treated you overall, went up in the control group and went down in the experimental group. Again, we made things worse rather than better. And the legitimacy was no effect, by the way, that's not like that. Um, so if we go back to our hypotheses, oh, that, that's just uh, legitimacy, I won't bother you with that one. Go back to our hypotheses. The intervention damaged perceptions of trust during the encounter. Um, the intervention decreased satisfaction with the stop, had no effect on trust and confidence overall in the police, had no effect on the legitimacy of the police in some overall sense. So why didn't it work? Well, we're still engaged in some, in some research around why it didn't work, why we made things work. But I think we can make some 
educated guesses. One thing we think we did was bureaucratise the encounter. So we made the officers so concerned with filling in, well, not filling in, but meeting all the criteria they'd been given on their tick list, they forgot to manage the encounter as human beings. We slightly turned them into robots, if you like. Um, I should say these effects are small, but they are statistically significant. We also suspect that we made the process longer. Again, they were so concerned with doing all the things we'd asked them to do, the stops became longer, they became more intrusive on that basis. They may even have been experienced as procedurally unfair by the people concerned because they were longer. So if you, if you drag things out, you're kind of suggesting to people you don't really respect them or their time, for example. Um, you're not worried that they might have somewhere to go and want to get this over and done with as quickly as possible. It's also possible the effects of the leaflets were negative. Um, it may be something in the design of the leaflet. Um, it may be something about reminding people that they've somehow been accused of being bad drivers and they've been stopped. That might have had the effect. We don't know about that. So say so we're doing some follow-up study, follow studies to try and work out what happens. But I would say having effects on a, a tool is great. So this is actually, I, I was sceptical right through this process that we'd find any results from this experiment whatsoever. I really didn't think we'd be able to have an effect. We did have effect. Just because it wasn't in the direction that we kind of wanted doesn't negate the importance that we found an effect. And actually working out what happened would provide a lot of information for, in this case, the Scottish police and the Scottish government on what they might be able to do in the future. Just last few things um, to, 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 to clear up on that. Um, so things can go right or, or uh, wrong as well as right when you do this kind of research. You really are kind of, if you like, putting your theories, putting your ideas right on the line. You can be proved wrong in a kind of, kind of absolute sense. Um, how do you deal with these perverse outcomes, theoretically, in policy terms? So and I, I'll come back to this point in a minute, but one policy implication of this, if you interpret it in the wrong way, would be the police don't really need to care about procedural justice. They're already doing all this stuff fine. They've got no issues with this whatsoever. Well, I can tell you in the context of policing in the United Kingdom, that isn't true. They do have quite significant concerns and problems around implementation of procedurally fair policing. But you could use the results of this experiment to say, well, we don't need to worry about that stuff. How do you deal with that? It's almost a presentation issue. It might go a bit um, deeper. Um, experiments don't really work in isolation. So we might have concluded on the basis of the QSEP trial that this is fantastic, all we need to do is increase the length of encounters, get police officers to tell people what they're doing, and trust and legitimacy will increase. Well, our experiments suggest actually no. You need to be very careful about the kind of implementation, the kind of uh, interventions you design and how you implement them. Um, beyond that, I would say replication, again, to risk point. Replication is a really powerful device. It's never good enough to do this kind of research once or twice. You have to do it lots of times to build up a body of knowledge, if you like. Um, of course, leading on from that kind of, these kind of problems is experiments are not a panacea. So you know, I'm kind of positive about this idea. I think it's a really good way of doing research. It's not going to provide you with all the answers to all your problems or all your questions. They can create as many problems and many questions um, as they solve. Complex interventions of the kind where you're often interested in in criminal justice are very different, difficult to implement in the experimental context. So even when the Scott set trial, it seemed very simple, and I invented it as it was, it was very simple, I think. Actually, it was a, quite a complex intervention in as much as we had the, chest, the checklist we'd given to people and we had the leaflet. So there's actually two interventions wrapped up in one. If we'd have had a positive effect, we had a negative effect, we don't know whether it was the checklist we'd given to the officers or the leaflet that had that effect. We don't know what would have happened if we'd taken one away. Would we have still got the effect we observed? Would we have got another effect? Replication in the future can help solve these types of problems. And that 
uh, that's two interventions. If you think about a youth justice intervention or, um, or an intervention in the courts, they're going to have to have very many different aspects of them. It'll be very difficult to design experiments that can address those types of issues. Um, there's always a problem, and this is best summarised by uh, Nancy Cartwright, um, and I can't remember his surname, Hardy there. Um, the problems of experiments and the problems of all social research is that it worked there, but will it work here? So we found it worked in Queensland, we found it didn't work in Scotland. And that it worked there, but it didn't, will it work here, is also a problem of implementation. This experimental, this RCT, results suggest that this implementation is good. How do we get from the context of the, of the experiment itself to the wider embedding of that policy change within the context of which you're working? Within which you're working? Um, and a final thought. I mean, I think one, and this is tapping into some of the bigger issues around this approach, certainly within British uh, chronology and American chronology at the moment, um, I think there's an increasing preponderance on the experimental measures. Uh, method in some sections of chronology and broadly that's to be welcomed it is a methodological advance over the methods and approaches we've been using before um, and it's great because you can assign causal effects and the causes of what we're usually interested in it comes with a number of attendant risks which I spend a lot of time talking about in the paper but just to summarise the one which I think is probably the most important um, for me and I think this approach risks instrumentalising criminal justice research um, basically, you can claim that procedural justice, and I think you should claim, procedurally fair, procedural justice policing is a good in itself. It doesn't matter if it purchases trust, if you like. It doesn't matter if it generates legitimacy. Those are, that's just the way that police officers should treat people. And you don't need to rely on the idea that it somehow works to generate trust and legitimacy to say the police, this is, should, this is what you should be doing. The danger of experimental approaches are we can say, well, well actually it doesn't have much an effect. This is too complicated a social environment for us to expect that any particular intervention around procedural justice would generate an effect in terms of trust and legitimacy. Well, you could then on that basis just say, well, we don't need to worry about procedural justice or we can't worry about procedural justice because it seems it doesn't have an effect. That's the danger. And another way of rephrasing that question, and I'll finish here, um, high customer satisfaction, with inverted commas around it, um, is again a good in and of itself. We don't need an experiment, we didn't need an experiment to survey drivers in Scotland and find out they were generally very happy with the police officers they encountered. Um, that, we could have done that on the basis of a survey, we could have just done that by talking to them. So in that, that's the way of question, saying that there are lots of um, research questions that we might be interested in that don't need the kind of approaches I've been talking about today. And the findings of those research projects can be just as important, if not more important, than the kind of things I've been talking about now. And I will finish there, I think. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much.